You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode 160. We are going coast to coast with union hotel workers involved with Unite Here's One Job Should Be Enough campaign. We're going to talk to two workers about what exactly that means, just one job, and why so many hotel workers are engaging in a wave of strike action. But first, the news. Did you enjoy your extra day off on Labor Day weekend? Well, what if every weekend were a long weekend? It's not a new idea, but it is catching on among labor advocates as well as politicians as the global dialogue expands around how best to adapt to and embrace the fruits of an economy where hyper-productivity, automation, and trade networks are making it possible to work a lot less every day. Recently, the United Kingdom Trade Union Conference laid out a platform for overhauling the entire structure of work and production in the UK, and one of the key provisions was to shorten the work week. The idea, which is part of its broader workplace modernization campaign, would be putting workers on a weekly schedule of about 32 hours, and that would give workers a fairer, freer work-life balance. Reduced work time would also guard against the rising threats of displacement, extreme stress, and exploitation, as the economic transition wrought by technology and globalization threatens to displace or actually eliminate their jobs. The UK workers' demands are echoed in the experiment of Perpetual Guardian. It's an estate planning firm in Auckland, New Zealand, and its staff engaged in a pilot project in which everyone went on to a four-day schedule for two months. In subsequent surveys, the staff indicated that their stress levels dropped significantly and their sense of work-life balance improved markedly from 54% to 78%. And their self-perception of commitment, um, empowerment on the job also rose. There are broader social benefits, too, for a shorter work week. Think about climate change. It could be addressed as workers' carbon footprints shrink through reduced commutes and fewer carbon-consuming hours of office or factory operation. And workers as a whole tend to be more productive because the time they do spend at work, while it is shorter in volume, is often more efficient and performance is often boosted by the fact that workers are just in a better mood and more motivated. You get less face time and less useless busy work in exchange for a more balanced, happier life, and that actually works for the company as well and can actually decrease turnover. On the other hand, there are dangers in simply deregulating work hours, and uh, the TUC was adamant about ensuring that the shorter work week is buttressed by stronger regulations. Think about corporations and how they've been introducing scheduling flexibility, so-called, as the evil twin of the shortened work week. They want to basically govern workers' schedules in a more erratic manner and uh, make sure that they're there whenever they want and that has a dramatically destabilizing effect on workers' lives. Ultimately, strong worker protections and union rights should be in place so that reduced work weeks don't simply lead to the intensification of work or an unfair reduction in pay. I spoke with Aiden Harper of the New Economics Foundation about why we might all work a little bit better if we work a little bit less. The TUC report is really encouraging, and um, uh, the, it seems that the trade union movement across Europe is really kind of refining um, its 
one of its core purposes, which is about work time reduction. Um, so um, the TUC aren't the only one who have released reports on this. The ETUC, the European Trade Union Congress, have also repeat, uh, released a report, which was released a few months ago. Um, within the UK, you have the CWU who have campaigned on short hours. These, so these are all really encouraging things. Uh, what the TUC, so as, 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 as much as we welcome the TUC report and, what, and its main thrust, we think that it um, can be more ambitious and that um, we don't have to wait to the end of the century to be able to um, create a, a world of shorter hours or a four-day week. And in fact, there are things that we could be doing now. We don't have to wait for automation to impact um, every single part of the workforce um, uh, to liberate ourselves from work. Um, there are uh, other things that we can do across the workforce um, and particularly in certain jobs so, for example, um, providing all contracts with the options for shorter hours, providing uh, all workers with the right to um, have the option of shorter hours instead of a pay rise. There are things that, you know, there's a kind of uh, cultural change that needs to happen um, within individuals um, and within businesses to think about, hey, like maybe long hours isn't necessarily a good thing. And again, you can see sort of particularly smaller businesses, but there are examples of uh, large businesses as well who are sort of rec beginning to recognize um, how short hours can actually be kind of make good business sense, um, just as it did in the um, sort of 19th and 20th centuries where you had the likes of Ford and Kellogg's in the US who actively uh, or drastically re reduced working hours um, and greatly increased output and profits. Um, and these are things that um, businesses today are looking to do in terms of increasing productivity, worker well-being, um, decreasing turnover, decreasing sickness um, as a result of overwork, um, looking after the mental health of their employees. These are things which companies um, can stand to benefit from. And so moving towards working hours is not something which is going to impact negatively on the economy, but actually um, have a kind of an overall incredibly positive effect and that's only the narrow business case. Um, obviously, short working hours has a much more profound importance in terms of what it is, what, what's the purpose of the economy, what's the purpose of work. And it's actually, you know, a, a lot of people would argue it's about having um, the ability to have, um, provide the basis for which you can have more autonomy over your own life. And we are well past the point at which we can um, we have the technology and the um, levels of productivity to work a lot less than we currently do. Um, people often rabbit, rabbit, um, rabbit on about uh, likes of Keynes saying that um, we would be uh, working a 15-hour week by now, and a lot of the predictions were right around um, increasing productivity. Um, but as a society, we have chosen uh, not to uh, re reduce working hours in line with increase in productivity. And that's because um, one could argue that uh, time at work has become neutralised um, and hasn't isn't seen as a site of political contestation anymore. Mm -hmm. We are making the case um, that time and working time uh, are should be and is becoming increasingly a site of political contestation. Something that w workers should argue for. Um, something that campaigners should campaign for something that, that businesses should view as something that's changeable um, and that they can work, um, work on and decrease um, to create a better form of um, 
of, of work and of work-life balance. And then one of the final things that we, we make, and, and, and we're, we're, we're an organisation which um, particularly kind of looks at a hard environmental angle, is that there is a very strong connection between carbon emissions and ecological impact and working hours. And um, we would say that there is no future um, in which economies are sustainable without drastically reduced working hours. And that's um, mainly because of the impact on um, consumption behaviour, um, but a, a series of um, other behavioural changes as well. For example, de decreased commute, um, as well as um, kind of more time to do more environmentally friendly activities such as walking and cycling instead of driving or cooking with your own ingredients rather than buying energy intensive frozen food products. A lot of precarious workers, you know, people who are regularly employed or on call or what you might call zero hours, they, they mm -hmm. are um, insisting on more hours, right? Because that's the only way they can sustain themselves. So, you know, how do we sort of break out of that paradigm where, you know, hours equal compensation? Well, I think this is, I mean, it's, it's what part of the key issues that we're um, dealing with. And partly, I mean, what I do go back to is often the idea that we are living in a world which is um, created as a result of, um, trade union movements and, and the eight-hour movement and um, progressive businesses which which made brave decisions and created the world that we live in now and it and when we created the weekend or the eight-hour day it didn't end up in Armageddon um, it, um, I think we would all agree that it created a much better world and at the time if you look at newspaper reports from the time if you look at um, politicians at the time um, kind of right-wing ones you you hear exactly the same arguments against the eight-hour day or the weekend um, that you do now for a four-day week. They're concerns that should be taken and addressed, but they should not be seen as doomsayers for um, what is really a progressive policy and will stand to benefit um, society and the economy. It's not going to crash the economy. Um, I think as well for, we have to as well look at, as I've said before, about the increase in productivity and change in technology, automation, which have occurred over the last 50 years or so um, and are um, predicted to continue to increase and um, at an at um, accelerating rate and the potential that has to uh, liberate more people from work. And maybe some of that will have to um, uh, be about redistribution, um, but certainly some of it will be, have to be about just how we go on managing automation. And this is where the TUC report is particularly strong because it talks about how do you manage the impacts of, of um, automation on a, on a society which has already been heavily impacted by deindustrialization. Um, what do you do with the threat of mass unemployment or at least the creation of um, a huge precariat of uh, low-paid uh, zero-hour contract workers? And part of that is about um, uh, making sure that automation and the proceeds and benefits of automation are shared evenly or fairly between employees and employers. That was Aiden Harper of the New Economics Foundation. It's been an ongoing wave of teacher strikes lately, and one that went a little under the radar took place in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania last week. For the first time ever, the teachers in this district went out on strike after over two years without a contract and were victorious. I spoke with Ann Catrillo, the president of the East Stroudsburg Education Association, about the strike. 
So for people who don't know East Stroudsburg, let's start off. Tell us a little bit about the area where you teach. Uh, the area is very different in the sense that we are considered to be rural because of our uh, the amount of land that we have and the span of miles that it takes. Um, however, it also is an extremely uh, diversified community, both mm-hmm. in socioeconomics um, uh, as well as all different types of people because we're so close, you know, within – uh, you know, two hours of New York City, New Jersey, mm-hmm. two hours of uh, Philadelphia. Um, we really have a, a great mix. We have two high schools, um, two uh, intermediate schools, and six elementary buildings. But about six to 7,000 families. So tell us about the issues that led up to the union going on strike last week. Basically, we have been negotiating for two and a half years to uh, – little plus years um, having no contract. Um, We really had many issues, mostly salary, of course, Mm -hmm. and benefits, which seems to be, you know, the nationwide trend. But for us, we were in like a four, within our Monroe County, there are four like major school districts. And our school Mm -hmm. district within the state of Pennsylvania is actually has the third highest fund balance, which means Mm -hmm. they have the ability to pay. And mm-hmm. out of the four um, Monroe County schools, we were the we are the lowest paid. We mm-hmm. are also the highest, we are also the highest tax um, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, the area. So it really was obviously an unfair uh, uh, idea as, as far as teachers are concerned. So we you know started the negotiations and kind of went back and forth. But we had a CFO who has uh, since retired, um, mm-hmm. and he really was doing what we call mixed methodologies uh, mm-hmm. in computing math for um, contracts, which is not the way you um, do contracts. So there really was so little movement, and their lawyer also was very instrumental in keeping the board members from from really truthfully negotiating in good faith. So by that point, we re- there was there was no movement. I mean, we were just it was just the same old story. It was, they were just they were giving us, as they would say, the same pot of money and just you know taking it from you know one side and putting on another. And so finally, you know, enough is enough. Um, as we as we say to our students, you know, you try to work things out when you're having a problem. You know, compromise and talk to people. But ultimately, when that doesn't work. You have to stand for yourself, you know, uh, you know, and empower yourself to do what is right. So we, you know, took the advice that we give to our own students and, you know, kind of practice what we preach and went on the uh, picket line on Monday the 10th. Mm-hmm. And we did picket Monday through Friday. Um, we had an outrageous, outrageous show of community support. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to our Facebook page, ESEA Pride, um, you'll be able to see all of the pictures and video and so forth of our uh, picket line. By the end of Friday, we were, I think, up to like 650 people. We could barely, like, mm-hmm. keep the line moving. We were so tight. It was it was just wonderful. And I really do believe that the pressure that the community um, put onto the board, um, mm-hmm. compiling that with a new uh, CFO slash business manager um, mm-hmm. who um, who met with our you know, math people, you know, kind of got the full picture. So 
I think by Sunday night, those board members knew that at the board meeting this coming, you know, yesterday, Monday, um, that, you know, they were going to be fried. So I think that a little bit of added pressure, truthfully, um, did most definitely, uh, you know, help to, to help us to move it along. So Sunday night, we reached the tentative agreement with the board members, you know, who are on their team. And Monday afternoon, yesterday at 1 p.m., we ratified um, five, overwhelmingly 95% uh, margin, uh, 504 to 28, I believe, was the exact um, count. Mm-hmm. And then at 7 p.m. last night, we had the board meeting, um, and uh, probably within an hour, I guess, of the beginning of the board meeting, they had ratified uh, 9-0. So today the teachers are off because the school districts had put in a 48-hour um, notice to parents. Um, so so they counted the 48 hours with the tentative agreement of Sunday evening. So we will be returning, thankfully, to the classroom uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. It's kind of amazing how quickly they can come to the table when, when the strike is actually called. Um, so what did you end up with in terms of agreements on, on salaries and health care and things? Basically, we are still not, you know, near the highest paid, um, you know, the county, but we definitely have, you know, moved up, which is, you know, wonderful for our members. You know, we kind of put some of the money, if you will, into like smoothing the salary schedules um, mm-hmm. so that for the next negotiations, which really is going to happen very quickly because mm-hmm. it was a five-year deal, but you're already into the third year of it. So right. yeah. um, by January 2021, we'll be coming back to the table. So it was really uh, important for us to leave, you know, the next team. I'm sure it will be many of our members, you know, same negotiation team, but we vote on that. So we wanted to make sure we kind of left the next group ready, you know, to be able to negotiate a little bit better and having some of the uh, steps smoothed. Um, basically, it was an overall 2.95% raise. Mm-hmm. Uh, healthcare, um, we had no deductible uh, going into um, this negotiations. We now do have a, a deductible um, that will cap out at the end at $1,200. We were paying a uh, $50 uh, premium share for, I guess, last couple of years, truthfully. Uh, and by the end of the contract, that is up to, I think, $75, 70 or 75 to be honest. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Um, $70, I believe, yeah. And um, some of our language issues, you know, were really important to us. They really wanted to take away um, a, a part of our language that had to deal with instructional periods. Which would have mm-hmm. basically, which would basically would have taken away our prep time. Yeah. So we so we did not allow that. We you know we we were pleased um, pretty much with this. by the end we got everything um, that we had originally you know sought for as far as language was concerned. We also um, have our schedule B that's our um, activities um, after school, um, coaching clubs, you know those kinds of things, mm-hmm. and. Um, literally two and a half years ago when this started, we had done a tremendous research and we took every single club and activity that's in our conference and we averaged, you know, all of, all of the districts and what the average salary was for those. And if we were mm-hmm. below that salary, we asked for the average salary. So it wasn't like we were, you know, 
asking to yeah. be the best, you know, paid and everything. Um, and we did accomplish that as well. Um, yeah. Moving, and that was like for the, you know, it's kind of the first year, if you will. And then after that, there's only really 1% raise after each year on Schedule B. But that's extra. That's not part of your main contract. Mm-hmm. So. So talk about this in, in the national context. I mean, this was the first time your district had ever been on strike, but we've seen a yeah. lot of teacher strike. We've still got some, I think, I don't know if the last one in Washington State actually got a deal or if they're still out. Um, mm-hmm. The Los Angeles teachers are possibly going to strike. It's definitely a moment for teacher strikes. Well, I think, unfortunately, and I don't know when, like uh, this is my 35th year um, mm-hmm. of teaching, and I don't know when, how, or why the tide has changed to make teachers public enemy number one. You know, uh-huh. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, you know, we are probably the most peaceful, compromising people in the world. You know, we're here to really hopefully make the world better, you know, by uh-huh. um, educating our youth, getting them ready for college. And in these, I mean, literally within the last five years, the blow-up of mental health issues and, um, you know, socioeconomic issues and, and, and just so much has, you know, and, of course, statewide testing and you know, all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. has, been, yeah. you know, has been laid upon the shoulders of teachers. And I really can't imagine any job being tougher than this job that we do, mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, and to have a lot of the public, you know, look down upon uh, teachers is just totally baffling to me, truthfully. And that's why our community show support was, I think, very unique, perhaps. I mean, I hope other communities learn from us um, in a positive way of what you can accomplish when you work together. Because in truth, I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that it was the community support that turned the tables for us, you know, because the board members heard loud and clearly that the parents were not happy with them, they're going to be voted mm-hmm. out, you know. I mean, and just the whole uh, – it was for our students, you know, I hope mm-hmm. it's for the public at large. It was a great lesson in democracy, you know, yeah. truly, uh, you know, a great lesson in what people can do when you unify and work together, you know, for a common cause. So I, I really I really do think that was, you know, the main benefit, truthfully, you know, of it. Like when you're out on the strike line, you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, this is going to be, you know, it's going to be horrible. You're going to have people, you know, saying horrible things while you're walking the line. And it's extremely, extremely stressful. And it rained pretty much every day. <laughs> yeah. And the weather has not been fun. Oh, my gosh. It was awful. But really, like the parents being there, everyone hunking the horns, passing by, um, really uplifted everyone's spirits and, you know, not to be very cliche, but, you know, brought sunshine into the cloudy days for sure. Yeah. Um, so couldn't be more grateful uh, for that show of support. It definitely feels like when you call the question like that, the community does, in fact, end up siding with the teachers. Yeah. I mean, and, and you have to let the community know, you know, I mean, that's, and we use social media, you know, very well. We had uh, parents who um, put together a community page, um, you know, and, uh, you know, we asked them to, you know, like our page and come to it often so they could see what was going on, and they mm-hmm. did. And and what we did in the midst of it, you know, people, you know, a couple of people, of course, you know, first, say, oh, you're only walking for two hours, you know. and But we were in the community the rest of the day doing mm-hmm. community service 
keeping in mind that we're not getting paid for these days either, <laughs> you know. Right, yeah. And um, we we donated easily 40 boxes of food to three or four um, local agencies. We worked at soup kitchens, you know, community dinners, um, meals on wheels, senior centers. I mean, in the list, we, you know, had garbage, you know, collection, you know, picking up garbage throughout the streets and the parks of the borough um, and into our um you know, neighboring towns within our district. And um, it's it's just, you know, it, it was it was very satisfying. And I think the community really uh, realized, you know, that what we do for the community outside of just, you know, teaching their children. That was Ann Catrillo of the East Stroudsburg Education Association. The National Labor Relations Board is poised to eviscerate a key Obama administration precedent. While the Obama administration wasn't always making worker-friendly rulings, one case it handled was a game-changer, and Trump is about to dismantle it. The ruling, in the case known as Browning-Ferris Root, addressed a core issue surrounding the joint employer rule, which provides that when enforcing employment rights, workers hired by subcontract can be legally considered employees of the company if the contracted work means basically doing the same job as a regular employee. Last week, the NLRB proposed a much tighter standard for considering a company to be a joint employer. It says it wants to define a company as a joint employer, quote, only if it possesses and exercises substantial, direct, and immediate control over the essential terms and conditions of employment, unquote. The company's control over a worker's working conditions and pay must be limited and must not be limited and it must be routine. What does that mean? So the tightening of the rule would limit the liability of many companies on labor rights. The Obama administration's reading of the rule allowed it to be broadly applied to sectors like warehouse work that contracts some parts of the staff to third-party agencies. Think about manpower agencies that send uh, on-call workers to uh, fill in at warehouses. There's long-standing legal controversy over how the joint employer rule applies to franchises like chain stores and restaurants. But the ruling that broadened the joint employment standard under Obama was also the linchpin of another major ruling. It was the pivotal case involving McDonald's workers. They held that the company was liable as a de facto joint employer due to their influence over workers' conditions, even if they were technically in the employ of the individual franchisee. Before the case was concluded, the NLRB flipped to conservative majority under Trump, and now the precedent could be completely scrapped. The board aligned with the big businesses who have long opposed the Obama-era standard, since many companies rely in large part on subcontracting as part of their key business model, just to cut labor costs and avoid regulation. The board argued that the strict interpretation of the rule, quote, would foster predictability, consistency, and stability in the determination of joint employer status, unquote. Really bad for workers. The rule is still pending comments, so it hasn't been finalized, and if it goes through, we don't know exactly how it will be applied. But it's safe to say that if passes prologue, if Trump's labor board prevails on this measure, it's likely we may soon see our labor protections further weakened, not by deregulating the standards themselves, but by simply redefining the law to ensure that huge chain stores and fast food restaurants get a free pass on their responsibilities as the employer by simply declaring that their workers don't actually work for them. This week saw a return to strikes for the Fight for 15, but strikes over a specific issue, sexual harassment. 
the intersection of the SEIU-backed Fight for 15 campaign and Time's Up, the legal defense group formed and funded by Hollywood luminaries after the beginning of what we now call Me Too, led to strikes at McDonald's restaurants around the country and demands for mandatory sexual harassment training, a secure system for responding to sexual harassment complaints, and the formation of a committee where workers could be involved in addressing sexual harassment. Study after study has found sexual harassment rampant in fast food. The last time we heard this much about it was around Donald Trump's attempt to make Andy Puzder, CEO of the company that runs Hardee's and Carl's Jr., the Secretary of Labor. Puzder withdrew his nomination after workers from his restaurant made the harassment that they face into national news. Harassment that just happened to coincide with allegations against Puzder personally for a mistreatment of women. I've long been counting that moment as the real beginning of the uprising against sexual harassment and violence on the job, a response that was catalyzed by accusations against Trump himself during the presidential election and crystallized by already organized fast food workers. For the Fight for 15 to organize a nationwide strike against sexual harassment is another step in this direction and an example of how labor organizing can be a vehicle for challenging sexism, racism, and other forms of oppression in the workplace. There's too often a division drawn between, quote, bread and butter issues or economic issues and social issues, but in fact, little affects women's ability to butter their bread or pay the rent, like being treated like a second-class citizen in the workplace, there to be groped and ogled rather than respected as a colleague. For unions to grow stronger, they are going to have to do more work like this, challenge all the ways that workers are abused on the job, and make themselves stronger vehicles for workers to solve myriad workplace problems. As friend of the show Alex Press noted in her piece on the strikes, the Fight for 15 and SEIU had their own sexual harassment issues with union staff in the past year. And a recommitment like this one to fighting against sexual harassment on the ground is a positive sign after the departure of some of those high-profile staffers. We will keep you posted on the aftermath of these strikes and whether you can expect more. One job should be enough. It seems like a common sense statement, but these days it's far from common sense. More and more people have to hold down two jobs, at least, in order to make ends meet. There have been recent stories about teachers' second jobs, and a recent NPR poll found that 30% of Americans had some form of side hustle, whether it be a real second job, a gig in the uh, so-called gig economy, or some other way to bring in a little extra cash to pay the bills. The folks at Unite Here, the hotel workers union, have started a campaign to highlight the fact that many of their members can't make ends meet with one job. We spoke with a couple of Unite Here leaders about the One Job Should Be Enough campaign, their struggles at Marriott hotels around the country, and why so many Unite Here locals are taking strike votes. First up is Nia Winston, president of Local 24 of Unite Here, Michigan and Ohio. Tell us about the hotel um, where you are, tell us about the issues in Detroit where you're based at the workplace. All right, so in Detroit, um, the hotel is called the Western Cadillac Hotel, mm-hmm. and that hotel has reopened, and it's been open for the last uh, 10 years, and unfortunately at the time of opening 10 years ago, that hotel opened during the recession. And so the, the very first time we went in to negotiate, it was important that we secured this grievance procedure for the employees there and, you know, just paid lunch breaks, et cetera, uh, uniforms. Uh, what happened during that time, we were not successful in negotiating any wages increases. Matter of fact, the workers there had an 18-month hole and freeze on wages. 
uh, as part of the recession. And so now that the hotel industry is doing extremely well and mm-hmm. has come back, especially the city of Detroit, which is number one in Rev Park, that the workers now, we are asking for significant wage increases so that we can catch up with the city. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about particularly the structures of, of the hotel industry in Detroit and the, the way that the recession shaped that. Um, so talk a little bit about the the impact of this campaign sort of across the country and how this is bringing together workers at, at Marriott's from, uh, from Detroit to Hawaii. So I feel that, I mean, just normally when workers go in to negotiate, they seem to forget about the rest of the workers that are in their union, right? Mm-hmm. So they're focused on, and sometimes they kind of feel secluded because they're focused on their contract and their particular needs. What's awesome about this campaign from Detroit to Hawaii is that workers get an opportunity to feel in, in more empowered and to also know that they're not alone, mm-hmm. that the same issues that they face in Detroit or San Jose and Oakland, San Francisco, Boston, or Hawaii are the same issues that we face here in Detroit, and they're not alone. So in a sense, I guess it feels like more empowered that we're really doing this together, and that collectively when we stand in solidarity, that we win. And so I think that is the biggest take for the workers in this campaign, because Mm -hmm. again, they work for the same employer, and the concerns and the needs are the same. So it's just great when we're, you know, uh, not just dealing with a handful of workers that we can you know, negotiate for 9,500 workers and they mm-hmm. feel a sense of solidarity across the country. Yeah, it's it's worth noting when you're talking about these massive hotel chains that maybe they can argue that Detroit wasn't making a lot of money, but it's hard to argue that Marriott has been suffering. Yeah, and, the, and now that would have been the case several years ago, but now they can't even argue that Detroit right. is not making any money at all. And so you see it all around us. We see it from the cranes. Um, and uh, that are out front. We see it in the folks that are walking around. You know, it's not desert town anymore. The workers are truly working hard. They go to work every single day to make the company a success. And, you know, again, all they want is their fair share. So they want to be a part of the revive, if you will. And so we're just making sure that we stand in solidarity on a collective effort to ensure that our membership get their fair share. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the way these trends towards intensifying the job have impacted hotel workers over the, you know, over recent years where there's new technology, you, you know, workers are being surveilled more on the job, things like that. How does that affect your, your experience on the job? So it's interesting that you ask that because one of our uh, significant acts is true job security. We find mm-hmm. that when they're cutting jobs and piling more on us or their subcontracted jobs out that need to come back to the hotel, whether it's technology, automation, like this all impacts us and mm-hmm. it makes it very difficult for us to do the jobs that we want. So this time around, we're definitely asking for true job security mm-hmm. to, again, to ensure that all workers are supported and that we're treated equally and fairly and that we're true partners because partners make agreements mm-hmm. and so we want to be a part of that. Yeah, and it connects back up to the, the question of one job should be enough, right? If you're saying, you know, we should have one job and it should be a decently paid job, it makes sense that it should also be a secure job. Yes, I mean, hotels need to respect the contribution 
of their success. And the success comes from, you know, the individual, the worker that is working every single day, come to work on time year after year after year to continue to make these hotels profit. And so they need to be mindful of that. So hotel workers and other hospitality workers have been at the forefront of a lot of the public conversation about Me Too and uh, women's working conditions in the last year or so. Um, Can you talk about how that has, you know, how that has played out for hotel workers at Marriott and for your ability to talk about the need for better conditions for working class women? Yes, I think the the working women of the hospitality industry started Me Too before Me Too mm-hmm. had even come up. I mean, these are some issues that we've been talking about for quite some time that yeah. just was ignored and fell on deaf ears because the patron and whether you were in gaming, he was a high roller, whether you're a hotel, I mean, you know, it was, you know, this guy, he's a business guy, he comes back every time, we can't upset him. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, we've been dealing with this for a very long time. I'm thankful with the Me Too movement and also with the work that our union has done across the globe and getting the panic buttons and working with mm-hmm. uh, government officials to ensure that we finally get an opportunity to make sure the worker is safe. And so, you know, there's some interesting proposals that are on the table in regards to respect for working women mm-hmm. and technology that actually helps us and not hinder us or impede us to do our job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk a little bit more about the panic buttons. I know that's been a big issue recently. So the panic buttons are huge and it's been a long time coming for our ladies, uh, especially the ladies, again, that work in hospitality, whether you are a server, a hostess, a buster, or you're a guest room attendant at a hotel, I mean, to actually have a device where if I feel like I'm in harm's way or in the process, unfortunately, of a guest sexually assaulting me and or harassing me, that I can just push a button and that it will alarm security or hotel management and someone will come to my aid. I mean, that is extremely helpful to the non-union places. And what they do now, you know, unfortunately the hotel acts, the housekeepers to just keep the door open. So you just put your cart in the, in the doorway and that's supposed to be secure. No, that's not secure. I mean, it's mm-hmm. in the doorway and folks are coming in, but so I feel like the ladies having an opportunity to have a device, whether they can keep it in their pocket or keep it on their wrist, where they know that they're, they're, they feel secure mm-hmm. at all times. And that, again, at a push of a button, that someone is there. And, um, and then hopefully it will defeat, you know, what the individual is trying to do. Because too many times I've heard horrible stories from guest room attendants or, in, or room service service that says, you know, a guest asks for something, you go up to take it to the room, you knock on the door, you do your three three knocks, and then you and you the guest invites you in, you go in, and the person is disrobed, naked, or making you know a sexual gesture. No one should have to be subject to that at work. You know, I go to work every day to provide for my family, so I should not have to be subject to sexual harassment when I'm on the workplace. So I'm just thankful that the industry is starting now to recognize and deal with the issue, but it's been going on for far too long. Tell me about what's going on in Detroit right now. The union, there have been several strike votes across the country. Um, Yours is not one of them yet, but what is going on on the ground for you and how can our listeners um, keep up with what's going on at your local? 
Okay, so every day uh, we're in the workplace, we're talking to workers, we're continuing our subcommittee meetings, and subcommittee meetings are us talking to the workers and talking to the department and just trying to work out some on-the-ground issues. Um, our bargaining will conclude uh, uh, towards the end of the month, and hopefully by then um, we've been able to reach a settlement. So every day we're just in the workplace talking to the workers and making sure that we're trying to address their issues and concerns and get some, you know, language things taken off the table and so we can concentrate on economic fairness and true job security uh, when we get back to the bargaining table. That was Nia Winston, president of Local 24 of Unite Here. And now we're going to hear from Jim Weinstein, president of Local 5 in Hawaii, where a lot of workers have already voted to authorize a strike. The idea of one job is enough, why is that relevant to the issues that both Marriott workers and hotel workers in general are facing. We all know that Hawaii is expensive to live in. And a lot of our workers, especially in local five, they work two or three jobs to survive. And it's not only that too. It's about like when somebody retired on their job job classification and their co-worker retired, they don't replace it. And they just add those jobs to them. We want the workers to retire with a healthy body. It's expensive to live in Hawaii. Nobody can afford to own a house anymore. It's really expensive. And we understand that the workers need to have two or three jobs. You know, we, we need to also be mindful about just even you have a job. It's when you go home and your body is tired, you're so stressed at work. You know, it's because too much things were clothed to them. It's equivalent to have a two job, three job. What are some of the extra jobs that people have to take on? What does a typical workday look like for a Marriott worker who's maybe doing housekeeping during the day and then has to pick up a night shift somewhere else? What's that like? I was just talking to one of the workers yesterday and she worked at the Marriott and she told me, I gotta go, I gotta go because I need, I need to go work another eight hours on Burger King. And my body's tired, but I have to. Cleaning 15 rooms a day is not easy. I think a lot of people overlook just how physically straining it is, you know, to clean one room, let alone 300 rooms, right? So talk about what the process is like, because I don't know what the Marriott is like, but in some hotels, especially non-union hotels, I mean, you get maybe 15 minutes to clean an entire suite. I mean, how do you how do you manage that? And what are some of the physical stresses of the job that people might not know about? Well, so workers need to finish, uh, you know, 15 rooms a day you know, enable for them to do it. Some of them don't even eat. And some of them like just rush here, rush there, like running. And sometimes they they do get hurt and they don't even mind full already about like getting hurt. They just keep on going because they put pride on their job. And something like in one room, it's not only one bed, there's two beds that need to be changed. So I think we will need to understand that. So if you clean, uh, 15 rooms, and it's all two beds. That's 30 beds that need to fix. Are, are a lot of workers dealing with things like chronic injuries later in life? Um, and what's the role of your contract in that and making sure that when workers do have these long-term issues that, that they're, they're taken care of? 
in housekeeping department, we propose that they have to limit double double in their station because we all know if there's two beds, company make more money because they can put more people in there. It's not like there's two person in one room. They paid me double. They're not. But we, you know, lifting and and bending, it's the injury of workers always have, and we have. We have a lot of housekeepers that get like surgery on their shoulder, on their back, you know. So if we can reduce our, our room credit for one more, that will help a lot. One room less to clean every day has a lot of help to the workers. Yeah, one yeah. room less per worker. I'm pretty sure the hotel can deal with that. When you interact with guests, what's that like? I've talked to hotel workers in Florida, and they say that frequently um, they get disrespect from guests, uh, or guests are you know deliberately leaving a mess, or they're just making their jobs difficult. What do hotel guests treat you like? And is that part of this campaign as well? Yes, I'm a housekeeper myself, you know, and some guests is just, I think that. They look at the housekeeping like really low and expose themselves. I experienced that. So sexual harassment. Yes. A lot. Yeah. You know, people people masturbate in front of, of the workers. I was talking to one of the workers and, and man, I tell you, like really, really sad. And the workers, like they feel like, Oh, I have to go and tell the management. They're not going to do anything anyway. I asked them, okay, so what, what do you guys do mm-hmm. when the guest is like that? Yeah. Nothing. We just ignore it already because, you know, what can we do? Go talk to the manager and the manager say, oh, just leave on the room. What has the union been doing about it? Um, I know in Chicago they started to do uh, panic buttons and they have that in New York as well. Is that something that um, is a focus at, at your local? And, and what other actions are people taking um, to make sure that you don't, you know, you're not just referred to HR and then uh, you know everyone forgets about it? We actually put that in the proposal about the panic button too, because uh, like I said, especially at night, right, it's hard to work on your own. You know, it's dark out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And. And we need to have a device that at least when we when we are being sexual harassed over there and the workers, you know, feel feel scared in, up there because there's somebody following them, you know, they they need to have a panic button. And we did put that in the proposal. And I actually went to Geneva just to talk about, you know, the, this issue. On the issue of sexual harassment, there's been a, a growing kind of awareness um, in, in recent months surrounding Me Too, and, and there's been some attention to Me Too in the workplace as well. Do you feel that filtering down, is that becoming something that the Marriott is more receptive to when you're trying to push these types of issues in your contract talks? I know that after we went to Geneva, you know, and and they kind of like commit to have a panic button, but until not till 2020. Uh, that's why I kind of, you know, 2020. So what's going to happen from from now till 2020? We don't have a panic button now. I know that they, they even put the note over there, like, you know, in the news. Hooray, we're going to give the panic button by 2020. They don't need to wait that. 
they really care about the workers, do it now. Um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, there's, there are so many issues that workers deal with day to day um, that seem to be neglected, but management increasingly um, tries to, you know, track the number of rooms you do. They monitor workers on the job. How does that control on the job um, affect you both at the Marriott and, and across the industry? Well, it's just stressful because, you know, knowing that somebody is watching behind what you do, we behind your back and, and look what you're doing. I, I experienced this before, like my manager had to follow in, uh, you know, I smoke and I, they followed me before. There's no ban yet that you can smoke, uh, you know, on the hotel and something. And I was followed and do you know that you have only 30 minutes break us followed by my gen my my executive housekeeping manager for me like, like i have to eat majority of the workers when they go eat 10 minutes 15 minutes to just put something on their stomach so that they can go up there and finish the 15 rooms mm -hmm. i experience like where i well i don't have time to go and eat and i have to put biscuits on my mouth so i have something on my stomach while I'm working mm -hmm. yeah yeah and, it, and it's sad it's sad that we have to be that way but corporation mm -hmm. doesn't care the workers anyway so yeah do they assign the rooms by uh by sort of an automated system is it like everyone's got you don't know exactly where you're going all the time they just keep on assigning you in real time so that they can maximize the number of rooms right now the Sheraton Hawaii yes Mm -hmm. You have to wait until your, your device tells you where to go. And mm. sometimes the device is not working and they have to go run here and they have to wait and then they have to call. It's so stressful because I'm the lead on this hotel, this hotel and I have a meeting with them and, you know, they're screaming at me and, you know, this, this one doesn't work because we have to wait. All the computer doing, all the cell phone doing is going around and around because the, I guess, you know, the signal is not strong at all. It's not strong. So they have to wait. And then sometimes they have to go to the fl another floor. And all of a sudden, when the assignment that needs to be done, the room, they have to go to the other building. They have to go another floor. They have to go from court, like end to end. Mm -hmm. And it's so, you know, I, I feel bad for these workers. Do you have parallel contracts across all the different hotel chains? We have contract in Marriott, in, in Hilton, in Hyatt, mm. and Waikiki Resort. So, so far, I think Kauai is the one that have that device. And I think Hyatt. I'm not really sure what's going on in the Hyatt right now. Is it a big difference between union and non-union hotels there? I can tell you, yes. You know yes. that firsthand? Yes, because I organize a non-union. And I talk to people, and you know, it's sad that the workers are are so scared. That's why they're not union yet. But I talk to a lot of non-union. They paying their medical up to eight hundred a month. So we just organized the host in Kauai, and one of the workers actually paying like one thousand for family medical. And also, you know, some of the hotel that we I try to we try to organize, they clean up to twenty six room. And they're crying. Mm -hmm. They're crying. They want to be a union, but, you know, it's not easy for them to just organize themselves because they can get fired. If the management find out that they're trying to organize the hotel, they will find a way to find, fire them. 
Okay. They have no protection out there. We now have a very famous、uh, hotelier in the White House. Have you felt like things are changing either for better or for worse、um, under Trump now that we have such a A focus on big business in Washington, and there are a lot of workers, especially immigrant workers, especially、um, working class women, who are feeling a little bit under siege these days. How has that affected what your union is feeling like now? Well, we all know that the Trump administration is going after immigrant, and our hotel workers is sixty five percent immigrant, and it's scary. It's not like they're immigrant, but you know they're not citizen yet. They can go after them. We all know that's happening. You know, you only green card holder. They can still, they can just deport you and find little things and deport you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We we are under attack, and sometimes I frustrated. But look, you know, I think we can organize the workers and fought,、uh, you know, fight back. Going forward, you just launched the strike vote, right? Yes,、yeah, so ninety-five percent workers voted, and we're in the process and getting ready. That if we have to pull the trigger, we're gonna pull the trigger. What are your red lines for the contracts, and and I guess what what are you really hoping is secured in this next round of talks? Me- medical is important for the workers. They we all know that you know we can't pay we can't pay eight hundred for family medical. You know, and we're making little, little bit. And of course, workload, workload is something that the company never don't want to talk about it. People when when people got calling sick, they don't replace that anymore. They're scheduled to work, they don't replace them. And management doing our job, you know, people that don't have hours, managers doing our job. Workload is. Very important for us, of course, money, because we want we want to make sure that you know we have enough money to live in Hawaii. We're not asking too much. This corporation is making billion, and those wealth is created by the workers. What we're asking right now is their penny. It's their penny. Do you have any sense of、uh, how likely it is that a strike will ultimately happen? Well, like I said, we will pull the trigger if we have to, and、right. the workers are ready.、Mm-hmm. It's a scary thing. It's a scary thing, you know. But I think the workers always do the right thing because they need to be respected. They need to be heard. And that was Gemma Weinstein, president of Unite Here Local Five. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg. I wish I'd written that. My pick is retrospectives of the financial crisis are leaving out the most important part: its victims. It's by Dave Dayan, friend of the podcast. In in these times. Dan combines a critique of the financial collapse with a unique critique of media failure, zeroing in on a group that both of these institutions have never really cared about: working people. So Dan corrects the record by showing that the neglect of the plight of the working poor, which persists to this day, was not just an issue of both industries' ignorance, but was actually a key factor in why the crisis happened in the first place. 
The working poor were always the canary in the coal mine, after all, but Wall Street kept suffocating them with their deregulatory measures, and the media's silence stifled them until the bubble finally shattered. As newspapers roll out opinion piece after opinion piece about the Wall Street crash and how terrible it was, Dayan writes, quote, It seems the only people not consulted for their perspective were those most powerfully affected by the crisis's impact, the millions of families who suffered foreclosure and eviction. Flip through the nation's major newspapers and periodicals, and you'll strain to find a single voice of a homeowner left adrift when the housing bubble collapsed. They remain as invisible to the media and the culture as they were to policymakers in 2008. And this tragic blind spot explains nearly everything about how America conducted the bailouts and for those who benefit. Dan then introduces us to a few of the stories of the devastation that came out of the crisis. He profiles Terry Crowley of Deerfield, Illinois, in her several years long ordeal with Wells Fargo after it screwed her out of her house and prevented her from actually recouping the costs that were unfairly imposed on her. While many of the retrospectives on Wall Street focus myopically on the plight of panicked leaders and the benighted executives of big banks, the media tends to do a better job painting a tragic portrait of the seans of corporate America than it does to humanize the dispossessed of Main Street. Had the media sounded the alarm earlier, had the banks heeded the warning signs, they could have averted or at least mitigated the crisis. But of course they didn't, because of course they didn't bother looking at the wider implications of their actions while they were busy profiteering and exploiting regulatory loopholes. And the reason why they didn't back then also explains why today the coverage of the crisis still seems to be similarly narrow-minded. Dan concludes with the narrative of Neil Irwin in New York Times. Looking back, Irwin reflects with a twinge of remorse that, quote, the politics of helping troubled homeowners was more toxic than the crisis managers had foreseen. But of course, many did foresee it. It's just that nobody bothered asking them. Dan responds to Irwin, quote, that's something that can only be written by somebody who hasn't sat down with a foreclosure victim. It's an excuse used by policymakers and their enablers so they can live with their actions. The same people who moved heaven and earth to secure extremely unpopular bank bailouts came up with all kinds of constraints when it came to foreclosures, unquote. And they came up with all sorts of excuses not to care about the people most impacted. Well, 10 years later and several years into the so-called recovery, Wall Street and Main Street are arguably even more polarized than they were back then. But the great divide of American society is even deeper today than it was in the midst of the crisis. And now it has manifested consequences that no one can ignore, namely in our politics. Dan writes, quote, foreclosure victims don't have lobbyists or liaisons that can grab the attention of elites. Not only did this prolong economic pain, it created a stew of anger and frustration and lent evidence to the Reagan-era notion that government is the problem and not the solution. It prepared the ground for populist demagogues. And so here we are in an era of populism slash billionaires running the country. Wall Street, meanwhile, is back in the gravy train. Good luck to them. If anything, they're even more secure now in the belief that there will ultimately be a bailout for them if they ever screw up again. Because while there are lessons to be learned from the last crash, those lessons will be learned by the wrong people, the people who least deserve to pay the price of Wall Street's ruthlessness. 
This week, I wanted to highlight an op-ed by America's most famous sexual harassment complainant, Anita Hill, weighing in on America's most famous job application process, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh is accused of sexually assaulting a young woman when he was a teenager and has serially denied ever doing it, while his defenders throw up their hands and whine that if this is so bad, then no man can ever get a job again, which seems unlikely. Hill's piece in the New York Times is called How to Get the Kavanaugh Hearings Right, and it does, in fact, offer advice for just that. It's worth doubling down on this point again, that Kavanaugh is not on trial. He is not at risk of going to jail. Literally, the worst thing that can happen to him out of this hearing process is, at this point, to not be confirmed to a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land, one that will, as many have noted, give him power over the bodies of many, many more people than those he may have encountered already in his lifetime. This is not a question of whether this person is allowed to live his life freely or to be forgiven. Plenty of people seem happy to have done just that. It is a question of whether this is disqualifying for one of the most powerful jobs in the entire world. And so Anita Hill weighs in in the New York Times, and she does so forcefully. Quote, in 1991, the Senate Judiciary Committee had an opportunity to demonstrate its appreciation for both the seriousness of sexual harassment claims and the need for public confidence in the character of a nominee to the Supreme Court. It failed on both counts, she writes. Quote, today, the public expects better from our government than we got in 1991, when our representatives performed in ways that gave employers permission to mishandle workplace harassment complaints throughout the following decades. That the Senate Judiciary Committee still lacks a protocol for vetting sexual harassment and assault claims that surfaced during a confirmation hearing suggests that the committee has learned little from the Thomas hearing, much less the more recent Me Too movement. With the current heightened awareness of sexual violence comes heightened accountability for our representatives. To do better, the 2018 Senate Judiciary Committee must demonstrate a clear understanding that sexual violence is a social reality to which elected representatives must respond. End quote. It's important to note, as she does here, that the way our elected officials respond and behave in these situations does trickle down, unfortunately, much more often than tax cuts do. It sends a signal that sexual harassment can be safely ignored, or conversely, it could send a signal that it must be dealt with seriously. No one expects Republicans to challenge a Trump nominee, and plenty of Democrats seem lukewarm on the idea, but we should look around at the world we have now and think about how different it might be if certain Democrats, who Hill notes are still on the same committee they were on when she testified before them, had behaved better and learned something way back in 1991. That's all we have for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening, for sharing Belabored with your friends, and for donating to keep us going. Just $5 a month gets you a sweet Belabored tote bag. You can donate at www.descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a McDonald's worker or holding down two jobs, if you're a striking teacher or just excited about the idea of a four-day work week. You can also tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>